And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, we continue with the Old Testament book of Joel and its teachings about the day of the Lord. Specifically, Joel's locusts are considered. And now, with his message for today, is our pastor, Robert Elliott. And so on the one hand, the day of the Lord meets out God's judgment on unrepentant sinners. And on the other hand, sometimes the day of the Lord provides blessing on repentant sinners who are in covenant with God. The Jews in covenant with God, with the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant and the Noahic covenant and all those covenants. And the church of Jesus Christ being in covenant with God with the new covenant. So within the collection of the Old Testament, which we call the minor prophets, By the way, we distinguish between major and minor prophets, not because the major prophets have a message that's more important than the minor prophets' messages. No, we just say the major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are major because they wrote more in the Spirit of God than did the other minor prophets who had equally important messages from God for us, but that what God said to the minor prophets was shorter in its length of words. So within this collection of the Old Testament books, which we call the Minor Prophets, and the Minor Prophets, you'll recall maybe, are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are the Minor Prophets. And within that collection of Minor Prophets, it is Joel who makes the very first reference to this concept of the day of the Lord. You can read all the way through the Old Testament and you won't see the day of the Lord mentioned until the prophet Joel mentions it. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15, and this is the first reference of the day of the Lord. You ready? Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So that's the first reference to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Now, the prophet Joel's point in chapter 2 of Joel is that this day of the Lord judgment loomed for his countrymen. While Joel was alive on earth, while Joel was receiving prophecy from the Holy Spirit and writing it down, the day of the Lord judgment loomed for his countrymen, and therefore they needed desperately to repent. In Joel chapter 2, The literal locusts of chapter 1 are portrayed as being foreshadows of even more serious locust invaders' future, and chapter 2 foreshadows a future human invading band, which is compared to locusts as an army. Now, there's debate between interpreters about who the army of the verses before us tonight, who they really are. Some people say they're human invaders that happened into the land after the locusts. I think as you look at the text, it's more likely that God brought another wave of an army of locusts a second time to be judgment 
on Judah. Why do I say that? Why do I say that the army referred to in Joel 2, 1 to 14, was more locusts and not human soldiers? Well, let me tell you a few reasons. Look at verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has been, never been anything like it, nor will there be after it again to the years of many generations. It's called a great and mighty people. I think there are several things in the text which show us that the real locusts are in view, as I've mentioned here in chapter 2. We know, I think, that it's referring to actual locusts because verse 25 plainly indicates that the Lord's army here in chapter 2 are locusts. Go ahead to verse 25. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Second, I think Joel 2 describes actual locusts because the army is compared to a human army's war horses in verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. Now something I didn't know, because I don't uh, welcome locusts into my living room. But if you take a locust and you look very closely at a locust with a magnifying glass, a locust's head is like the shape of the head of a, of a horse. I think this second wave of army invasion was more locusts. I think another evidence for this in chapter 2 is that there is a comparison going on between real locusts and a coming human army because we see repeated figures of speech called similes. We take the Bible literally, except when the plain sense of Scripture doesn't make sense, then we look for figures of speech. For instance, God is said to take Israel under his wing. Does God have wings like a bird? No. It's like, God is like a bird that takes her chicks under her wing. Here I think what's going on are several similes. And they're all flagged by the words like. They're comparisons between locusts and actual human armies that are still yet to come. Look at verse 4 for one simile. The attacking invaders, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. If these were literal horses, don't you think Joel would have said, and horses rode in? Another simile in the latter part of verse 4. And like war horses, so they run. Or go to verse 5 for more similes. With a noise as, as of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. God is saying the second wave of locusts will do the damage of an army. They're like an army. Or another simile, verse 7. They run like mighty men. Wouldn't you say if there was a human army, the men ran? But it says, no, they, the locusts, run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They each march in line nor do they deviate from their paths. I think that God sent a second wave of locusts worse than the first wave. Furthermore, we see the behaviors of this second invading army as locust behaviors and not human being behaviors. 
locust armies, they swarm, according to verses 2 and 5. They destruct and eat the vegetation, according to verse 3. They leap and they scale, according to verses 5 and 7. They make a loud noise. Ever heard locusts? When I was on missions trips, I heard locusts, and just a few of them kept me from sleeping. They're noisy. Can you imagine billions of locusts, how loud that would be? Yes, I think that these are locusts and not a human army because they darkened the sky. If you have billions of locusts flying through the air between crop fields to eat the vegetation, they would block the sun because they'd be so thick. They would darken the sky. And last, we know, I believe, that these are real locusts being described in chapter 2 because they don't do what human armies do. That is, they don't kill. There's no reference that this second army kills anybody. And also, they don't loot. They don't steal property and go off with it. I think these are insects and not people. So... I believe we could correctly say that the locusts of chapter 1 were the advanced troops of the Lord's campaign of judgment, a campaign of judgment which would culminate with a future worse locust invasion that is being described for us in chapter 2. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas, and this is another edition of Youth Talk. And today we want to Continue talking about Jesus and your image. And I think that so many times in our lives, we get caught up in in what people think about us. And I think that as we consider this, and as we consider what um, the world thinks about us, we need to be more concerned about what Jesus thinks about us. And especially as a young person, I know that we have an image that we want to keep. You know, you have an image, you want to be popular, you want to be accepted by people, but the reality is, is that for us to be accepted by people, we're going to have to compromise our beliefs in God sometimes. And the reality is, is that when we do that, we're not betraying Christ. We're betraying the world and we're betraying things that we would not want the world to see. And as we consider in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we're going to look at, at a particular passage as, as we see Jesus is, is there and a lady comes and she begins to wipe his feet, and the Pharisees are there, and they're wondering, well, why, why are you letting this happen? And it starts off in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says this, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. I want to stop there. I want us to understand as we consider this passage of Scripture. As we know in Scripture, as we consider at this time, women were, you know, they were not equal to men. They were looked down upon in the town. Here it is, a woman comes and it's very clear to say that she was a sinner. So the question would be in a lot of people's minds, why does she feel that she can come to Jesus? Why does she feel like she could, you know, bypass the Pharisees who people would consider, you know, the lawmakers, the religious people, you know, what makes her think that she can come in this place and basically sit at the feet of Jesus? Better yet, not just to talk to him, but to begin to cry and weep and wash his feet. 
Again, we see this woman doesn't really care what the rest of the people think about her. She is not worried about what the Pharisees are going to think about her. She's not worried about what anyone else is going to think about her. And I think that this is how we need to be in our lives. I think that we need to to take a, a page out of this woman's life because I think too many times we're so concerned about what other people think about us, especially when it comes to our faith, especially when it comes to standing up for what we believe. I think too many times as, as we um, look around the world, it, it's so easy to be comfortable, so easy to fit in, it's so easy to be accepted by our peers in school, whatever you know, we go through in life, it's so easy to be accepted. But when we go against the grain and we think of our lives and we think to stand up for Christ, it becomes difficult. We may lose friends. We may lose relationships. We may go through so many different things. But we have to ask ourselves, what do we care about? Do we care about our image in the world? Do we care what Christ thinks about our image? Picking up at verse 39, it says, this, When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Again, we, we have this picture of the Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, look, you need to understand that this woman, she's not just a woman, but she's a sinner. She's a really, you know, as, as we consider, she had a bad reputation you know, it's just like us in, in our world today. We need to make sure that as we consider and, and I know that this can become a big problem because some people say, well, this, see, Jesus did this. So we need to understand that we can go here and we, we need to reach out to sinners. And I agree that we need to reach out to sinners, but we need to know our limitations. You see, for myself, I can't say if, if I were the person who struggled with drinking, it would not be wise for me to go in a bar to try to reach other people in a bar because it'd be easy for me to fall into that sin again. Or you may be listening, and you know what? You just say to yourself as a young person, well, you know, it's just hard because we need to understand what Scripture says as well because Scripture says that bad company corrupts good character because we know that there are friends who, who your parents may not want you to, to hang out with. And I think that we need to make sure that when we consider these relationships with these type of people, we need to make sure that it is in public. As we consider this whole you know, seeing this is a public display that Jesus is doing. He did not go in private with a woman. And this is another problem. You know, when we consider this as a, as a male, um, you know, people, and, and we know of relationship that people say, well, we were doing Bible study with a male and a female. Well, the reality is, is that we need to be very careful. We need to be above reproach. We need to make sure that we're not seen in a, in a compromising position. And Jesus made sure that, as is, again, this was public. But Jesus, as he replies to this woman, he says this, Simon, have I something to say to you? And he said, say it, teacher. A creditor has two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he was graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly. And he told them, you see, we need to understand as Jesus is given this illustration, as he's given this, we need to understand what he is saying, that we need to know that as this woman is coming to him, she is looking for forgiveness. She is looking for coming to him at his feet. And what a picture that is to, to basically submit herself under his authority. Again, as we consider what she went through, she went through crying, weeping. 
She didn't have water, but she used her tears. You see, I think that sometimes in our life, we need to be broken like this. We need to recognize that we need to be brought to tears because we, our heart needs to break for the world that's around us. Our heart needs to break for people around us that are, are dying and going to hell. You see, we need to understand as we consider this woman, her fearless act to come in in public to, you know, do this act of, you know, service for the Lord. We need to understand that we need to be, do this as well. Because so many times in our lives, we get so caught up in, in worrying about what people think that we don't really care what God thinks. And we've forgotten that. And we've forgotten that as a Christian, we are a representation of Christ. And we need to understand that as we consider this in our lives and we consider Jesus in our image, we need to understand that we represent him. And I want to challenge you as, as we close this session and we're going to pick it up on the next week. I want us to understand that as we consider, as Jesus is talking to, to the Pharisees and, and making sure they understand what, who this woman is and what she is doing, I want us to understand that we need to get uncomfortable for Christ. We need to understand that life as a Christian is not going to be an easy life. You're going to have to make tough decisions. You're going to have to cut off these relationships that affect you. You're going to have to, you know, think about those friends who, you know, basically you have to give up. I know in my life that was what I had to do. I had to give up some friends because I had to pursue Christ with everything. And I knew that those relationships were keeping me back. So I would challenge you this morning to look around you. Look at the friendship, the relationship that you have and ask yourself, are they pointing you to Christ? Are they making you a better person? Or are they taking you away from Christ? This is Pastor Nicholas, and this has been another edition of You Talk. And now, today's ministry spotlight. This morning, I'm very pleased to have in the radio studio some new friends, uh, Philip and Margaret Evans, who live on Anglesey Island, which is off the north coast of Wales. And they have come to the Bahamas and to our church for a mission conference. Good morning, friends. Good morning. It's wonderful to have you. I know that the Lord has built into your lives some wonderful experiences that really reveal his faithfulness and, and goodness. And um, Philip, I'd like to visit with you at this point on a brief history of Wales, the country in which you now live. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to be here talking to you. Wales is an amazing country and it, it is often known as the land of revivals because going right back to the 18th century, there have been uh, revivals there uh, when the Holy Spirit, the gospel is being preached and, and many people have come to the Lord. The, the most well-known one is 1904 when um, a young coal miner called Evan Roberts was greatly used of, of the Lord and over a hundred thousand uh, people came to know the Lord at, at that time. Praise the Lord. And it had, had such an impact that um, drinking houses, pubs closed down, mm. even um, rugby matches which was really, you know, the nation's sport and almost idolatrous didn't take place in, in that time. Wow. And although it was very short-lived, it, it was a very powerful, the stories of hardened, tough coal miners walking down the street and, and suddenly uh, becoming convicted of their sin hmm. and realizing they were sinners and they would run into a chapel and, and, and repent and... and uh, 
chapels had services every night. My. And so these miners uh, would go to work. Coal mining was, was a big thing in South Wales then. Uh, and then in the evenings, they'll be in the chapels uh, and they'll be singing. And uh, the whole thing just spread like wildfire throughout the whole nation and had a tremendous impact such that uh, they'll be singing. It, it, it was, I think it's often known as a singing revival as yeah, well, yes. which is, is why Wales has so many choirs even to this day. And, and, and they... They still sing uh, some of the old hymns. At, at the rugby matches, they, they'll sing, uh, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Wow. And the bread of heaven still. Is that right? So um, when you said it was short-lived, uh, roughly how long was the revival? The, the revival it, itself lasted for about a year. Hmm. But of course, the the impact of it continued for... Uh, probably in, until the last uh, 50 years or so, um, when the chapels were still, even in the 1950s on the island of Anglesey where we lived, uh, the vast majority of people would still go to church or chapel. But of course, as another generation comes on, they don't necessarily follow the Lord in the same way. And, and what was alive becomes more... Uh, traditional yes. uh, and religious and so then there comes a generation that turns away from that and, and that's where we are today uh, I would say Anglesey today is perhaps one of the most unreached places with the gospel in Great Britain mm. um, probably less than um, just one or two percent attend church on Sunday now mm. so it's a great harvest field great opportunity for the gospel and for outreach. Yes, indeed. It's not original to me, but there's a saying that God has no spiritual grandchildren. Exactly. The idea yeah, that yeah, uh, that's it. one's parents being born again doesn't cause our their children or their children's children yes. to be born again. Yes. It's a definite working of the Holy Spirit and repentance yes. and faith yes. in Christ. Well, I'm so glad you shared a little bit about that time of revival in Wales and uh, as a pastor here in the beautiful Commonwealth of the Bahamas, uh, we stand in dire need of such a revival in our islands. And of course, uh, the Welsh revival was predicated uh, by prayer, by yes. the people of God who, who yes. knew and loved the yes. Savior praying. Yes. And so listeners today, uh, if you know Christ as your Savior, uh, please go to your knees often to ask for revival to come to the Bahamas. And uh, if you're listening today, uh, listener, and, and you have just tradition, a form of godliness, lacking the power thereof, and maybe you go to church only because your parents take you, or, or they did, and you just go as a superstition almost, as a tradition, then please turn to Jesus, confess your sins, uh, go to his cross, trust him and him alone to be your savior, and be part of a revival that God wants to do and is capable of doing in the Bahamas. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Philip's recounting in a, a brief manner of the mighty work you have done in Wales. And we pray that uh, your gospel would be heralded and heeded once again in Wales and in the United Kingdom as a whole. We know, Lord, that you your arm is not short to save those who will turn to you yes. in faith. Mm -hmm. And so that would be our desire for the United Kingdom, 
but also, Lord, for the blessed uh, and precious Commonwealth of the Bahamas. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 If I could just add to that, that the revival <clears throat> started with just 15 people. When Evan Roberts, in the chapel he attended, was asked to speak at, a, at the youth church, the youth meeting. And before that, as you mentioned, prayer was the key because he was in prayer during the night for, I believe, two years before that time. Wonderful. Uh, for several hours during the night. And he determined, he knew that there was a breakthrough coming and he determined that he would not miss a church service because he knew there was going to be this time when, when breakthrough would come. And it happened with these young people. And from then it, it spread through the whole time. And there's stories when some of these miners who had been converted down in the pits where they mined coal, they had previously trained the, the pit ponies who carried the, the wagons of coal w with their foul language swearing at them. Yes. But of course, after the revival, when they'd been converted, they didn't swear anymore. And they had to retrain <laughs> these pit ponies because they didn't, the they didn't understand them anymore. That is, so, that's remarkable. That's the fruit of the revival. Exactly, the transformative power of God. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. First Corinthians 3.15 gives rise to this question. Is Paul suggesting that believers will experience the fires of purgatory before going to heaven? In 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 to 15, Paul teaches that God will evaluate and reward the quality of each Christian's work. The results will entail both reward and loss, but Paul is quick to say that the loss will not endanger one's salvation. But what is the meaning of Paul's phrase, as though through fire? Is he referring to the fires of purgatory? Fire is used in Scripture as an image of judgment. Uh, compare 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. Passing through fire is indicative of a narrow escape. See Amos chapter 4 verse 11 and Zechariah chapter 3 verse 2. Paul uses the image of burning to refer to the testing of the believer's works. Worthless works will be burned up to the believer's loss, but no harm will come to the believer, although the experience is likened to a narrow escape. Note Paul's use of the word as, Greek, has. Paul is not saying that the believer passes through fire. His warning is hypothetical. It is merely as if this were the case. The doctrine of purgatory is based on the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, 
which was never accepted by Judaism or by the New Testament writers as inspired. 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 44 to 45, commends prayers and sacrifices for the dead so that they might be released from their sins. But Christ has paid the full and final sacrifice for sins. See Hebrews 1, verse 3, and Hebrews 10, verse 14. There is no biblical basis for purgatorial suffering for sins before entering heaven. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m., and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.